0: Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, there's a cynical theory about writing. Everybody has a book in them, and that's where it should stay. Who is Hinch to talk? He's finished writing his 16th book. How hard is it? And what do you need to know before you even start? Mr Hinch, welcome again to That's Life.
1: Hi, Mr Talia, Good to be here. Good to be here.
0: I think this is uh, podcast uh, number 30 that we're doing. Yep.
1: Hard to believe, isn't
0: it? <laughs> well, it's season two, but overall it's uh, number, number 30. Uh, and uh, today we're going to talk about writing a book. Now, hmm. you've written quite a number of them. I've got a few of them at home. Uh, in total, how many?
1: I think 16. Uh, my new one comes out at the end of this year. That's going to be a paperback about 75,000 words. Look, on writing, this is a, a subject obviously very close to my heart. I've been doing it for decades, but I used to have an awful, two sad jokes. One, I should say to people, everybody has a book inside them and that's where it should stay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. but, but having said that, I've written 16. I remember once years and years ago being interviewed for the National Times by Helen Garner, a very good Australian writer who wrote Monkey Grip. And she was interviewing me and with the arrogance of youth. She, she asked the question, she said, Oh, what are you reading at the moment? And I said, forgetting she'd just written a book. I said, if I've got time to read a book, I've got time to write one. <laughs> yeah. Which is not the smart... And she quoted it in the National Times, <laughs> It made me sound like an, an arrogant prick, but there we are. Now, let's Look, go through,
0: Darren. The, the, the first book you wrote, now, um, what was it called and what was it about?
1: Uh, I think the first book I wrote was probably the Scrabble book, which I wrote when I was based in New York. And I realised it was around the time in the 70s, as a recession was on, but people were still buying how-to books. I mean, there was a book out called How to Train Your Pet Avocado, you know, and uh, How to Train Your Pet Rock. And I realised that how-to books were working and that, and that during depressions and recessions, people still read and still went to the movies. And I started working, I was doing a feature from the Sun Herald, the Sydney-based paper, on the, I think, the 50th anniversary or 25th anniversary of Scrabble. And uh, I started researching it. And I got fascinated by it, and I thought, "Well, why don't I write a book on Scrabble?" And I was ma- just married Eve, and my then wife, and uh, I-, I dedicated the book to her and said, "Even though she's only worth eight, Eve is only worth eighteen points on a triple letter score." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I-, I taught her how to play Scrabble, and I realised that um, what a great game it was, and what I knew about it because I uh, I had um, I started playing Scrabble when I was a kid. Uh, about nine or ten, my grandparents taught me how to play Scrabble. And I loved words, and so it got me involved in it. I played, played it a lot. And then I was having, by a fluke, I took a summer off from going to the pub, which means you you can write more if you don't go to the pub after work. And friends would say to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing a book. And anyway, I used to have these, I've mentioned this before, these Saturday night Chinese banquets at my house. And uh, one night, I invited one of my fellow staffers when I was a bureau chief for Fairfax, and he said, oh, Darren, do you mind if I bring my new girlfriend because my wife and I are split up? And I said, well, that's not my business, fine. Anyway, the new girlfriend and he arrived and she didn't say much during the night and halfway through this banquet, somebody said to me, oh, Darren, what are you writing about? And I'd had a of glass of Merlot, so I said, oh, I shouldn't tell you, but I'm writing a book on Scrabble, how to be the world's greatest Scrabble player. And I started telling him the background to it how a man called Alfred Mosher Butts, who was a, an architect during the Depression, had started writing this game called Crisscross Words. And he made his first games on, on, with um, blueprint material on, 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 on cardboard cutouts. And I'll tell him more about Alfred Mosher Butts and how he launched the book, the game, and it didn't really work. And then somebody else bought it, and Meyer picked it up, and it became a huge game. And somebody said at the dinner table, said Alfred Moshe Butz, what happened to him? And I said, oh, I presume he died. And the, the, my workmate's new girlfriend, who hadn't spoken a word virtually all night, said, he's not dead. And I said, what? She said, oh, he's not dead. She said, uh, I'm a receptionist for, for a, a doctor in Queens. He's one of our patients. <laughs> I looked at her as if gold had just dropped out of the sky. (laughs) I said, what? He said, Alfred Butts, he's one of our patients. I'll give you his phone number on Monday. So I got his phone number. I interviewed him and his wife. I played Scrabble with him. Um, And then I wrote my book and the Scrabble book came out, published in in, in America. And uh, he put a, a blurb on it. In the second book, I wrote a new book, book, a follow-up on Scrabble years later, and I admitted that he wrote this thing saying, this is the best book ever written about my game. Well, A, it was the only book ever written about his game at that stage, and B, I wrote the quote (laughs) for him. Uh, In fact, when I showed him my book, he didn't say this is the greatest book ever written about my game. Uh, Alfred Moshe Butts said to me, Darren, you've ruined my game. (laughs) and I said why he said well you've ruined it he said you've turned it into a war (laughs) I said well it is it's a a word war he said my wife and I play every day he said I I, I never challenge a word and if she wants to look up the dictionary she's allowed to he said you've even got a chapter on on how to cheat I said well people do Uh, anyway that was the reaction he gave me which I've misplaced somewhere in my house uh, he gave me his original crisscross words board, his original Scrabble board, which he gave to me, which I've got in storage somewhere. Um, but that was it, and so that was my first book. How,
0: how many? Um, as a very niche topic, uh, how many books? Uh, how many uh, Cop- uh, copies did, did that sell?
1: I, I don't I don't know. Honestly, I don't I don't know. Um, I um, look. I, I, I wrote. Two novels. One was called "Death." At, the first one is called "Death at Newport" about well, America's well, Cup. Well,
0: I know that. Yeah, that's uh, that's based on the. weren't you going to make a film about that?
1: Yeah, there, some, well, there. somebody paid me some money and took an option on making a film, but then they wanted to change it from the America's Cup to some other match race and move it from here to there. And I need They they had a, I mean, it's just gone kind of like back thirty years. And they, I think they gave they took an option on it for one month for twenty thousand so dollars. I said, sure, do it. And then they, the months ran out and it never got made. Because people
0: uh, wouldn't know, Darren, that uh, a guy who uh, you were associated with, in fact, uh, you used to share an apartment with, he he wrote Mad Max.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, Terry Hayes. He wrote the Mad Max series. He also he wrote that, um, Deep Calm, which was a, a, a horror thriller. But the, the, the novels, I loved writing novels. I've, I've, I've worked on a third one for years now, and it's... It's set partly in Japan and partly in Hawaii. And I've done all the research in Hawaii and in Japan, but I'm not sure I'll ever, ever get to write it. I hope I will. But I did realize one thing about writing books is that my the Deritage Diet Book was a bestseller. Number one on the Daily Telegraph's bestseller list. Number one ahead of um that year ahead of Naomi Naomi Wolf's um The Beauty myth. But I had to realize it sold more copies than any of my novels ever sold, and that's an understandable understandable thing. I'm actually working on a, on a re, an update on it for next year, which I may finish writing. But look, going back to, to writing books, and I say about how hard it is, and people write to me all the time saying, how do I get published? And self-publishing is a, is a big deal, I'll get into that. But this is, this is depressing, and I remember writing this at one time saying, why am I writing my book when I'm doing this research? In Britain, I'm going back a few years now, but eighty million books a year. Eighty million copies of books a year were being pulped. Brand new books being pulped that hadn't sold. Think of that. Um, I it's remember a lot I, saw of a very hit. I saw a headline saying pulp fiction and it was pretty true. But they they print there's about eighty thousand copy eighty thousand titles are printed published in in the uk every year they they recall and mash 80 million of them um i was reading some research on this some of them from some of the world's best known authors go to the pulping factory in northern england still in the plastic (laughs) that that they've been wrapped in they've never been opened never been undone uh and of of the and i also read that of the um the uh 80,000 or 90,000 books that are published every year, about 60,000 of them, the average sale is about 20 copies.
0: Right. I, I, my goodness, yeah. So if you
1: think you're writing a book, think again. I mean, you. I, I've made money out of some of mine, but I've obviously lost money on, on many because if you think of the hours you spend writing and for the financial return, you're very lucky. Um, I recall... You know, the, the, you, know you, you can you can work for months or years writing books and don't ever think about how much per hour you're being paid. Uh, so anyway, those those statistics are fairly scary. But I've got some bad stories of my advice about writing. Um, there's a, a journalist called Yvonne Dunleavy in New York. And Yvonne Dunleavy was married to Steve Dunleavy, a famous or infamous Aussie journalist working in New, in New York. And uh, there's a woman called The Happy Hooker, Xavier Hollander, and they decided she should write a book about her life in New York and the corruption of the New York police force. Anyway, a friend of mine, we worked for a publishing company, Leonora Burton, and, uh, who published my, uh, my Scrabble book. And she told me about this book, The Happy Hooker. And a guy had written, his name i have forgotten, he wrote The Green Berets, was hired to write the book, but he was too busy, so he offloaded it to Yvonne Dunleavy to, to ghostwrite it for him. And we're having dinner one night, and I said, Yvonne, so you're writing this book? Uh, and she said, yeah. I said, what are you being paid for? It? I said, are you getting an in advance? She said, no, we've done a deal, he's gonna pay me 25 cents a copy when it's published, right? Now, this is in the 70s, and I said, Oh, come on, he's having you on, he's taking a landing. I mean, he's got a huge advance, he's gonna pay you 25 cents a copy afterwards. She said, Yeah, and that's what happened. The thing was, the Happy Hooker sold eight million copies, (laughs) so she Yvonne got two million dollars in the 1970s, and I've been to her wonderful. Fifth Avenue apartment, which she bought with the proceeds <laughs> from the book. So I'm not the best advice giver on when it comes
0: to that. Darren, uh, tell me the uh, the process <coughs> that you you use. Uh, I mean, uh, when you decide to write a book, uh, you focus on that totally, or you do it in between doing no.
1: I other do it in between. I've always worked full time while writing, and I I write at night, or I like writing late at night, uh, three or four hours at night. Um, Two, two things, one, you, you've got to know what you're talking about. And you've got to do good research. I mean, some people like Jeffrey Archer and uh, and uh, Peter for Simons hire researchers, teams of other researchers and writers, and then they fit it, you it know, or henchize it, sort of thing, The all the material they've got. In my case, look, you think, OK, I'm going to write a book about this. You should write a scenario. If it's a novel, you write a scenario. So you know sort of where you're going most of the way. Um, Matt, just plot out where you want to go with the book. Aye, while you're doing it, uh, I've always said writing is five percent inspiration and ninety-five percent perspiration, and that's pretty true. Now, in the old days of writing with a typewriter, you'd pound it out, you'd print it off, and you'd when you finally felt some weight of paper in one hand, you'd say, "Here, yeah, that's a book." Now, of course, it's all done on uh, on, on your laptop. Um, and it's e- not easy to write, it's easier to, to physically do it because you don't have to cut and paste everything, or you don't have to uh, rewrite it, you just cut and paste it and you can delete and move stuff around, which you could never do on the old upright. I mean, when I submitted a manuscript in the old days, it had to be letter perfect, <coughs> Excuse me. so you'd use, you know, whiteout to make it look good. I, I, I was working on writing so many times on upright typewriter that I got developed RSI when it was not even fashionable uh, because you're working on a big old upright Remington, you know.
0: So when you write late at night, do you wake up the next morning and then read what you've written and, oh, yeah. and then think, oh, gee, that's uh, yeah, not good enough? That's I, I not can clean it up, yeah.
1: I mean, I've finished writing my, my new book, uh, which I'm still. every day I still go back and polish it. I may read a chapter and change one word. You know, I'll say, oh, I've used that word in a previous chapter. You know, you so you you very get very self-critical about just cleaning it up. When you're writing novels, it's different. Um, when I was writing my two novels, I discovered that you'd by one o'clock in the morning, you'd had a couple of glasses of wine. You'd think I've got to stop, but you always leave a hook. So when you came back next day, you had somewhere to start. You never finish cold you come back and also you'd find that something you wrote with a couple of glasses of wine under your belt would take you somewhere where you wouldn't have gone otherwise and it might launch a new chapter that gives you um, an idea and sometimes you go back and and you get very callous as a former editor and you um, you get brutal when it comes to uh, you know editing and removing words removing sayings or things you realize you've used somewhere else in the book so you know and but also i've got a new, a new a new habit i've only developed this in recent books uh, i think i may have shown it to you once i have a page a battered old page with some coffee spilled on it in which when i finish every night i go to the review section of my laptop and it says word count and i write down the number of the word count and then next day i add I, I, it either goes up or goes down sometimes you edit something out Or you add another thousand words. If you can, if you can write a good thousand words in a day, then that's a good day.
0: That doesn't seem like a lot of words to me. uh, A thousand words. Um, A
1: a thousand words that other people may want to read.
0: uh, uh, How much is a a novel? Seventy, eighty thousand.
1: I guess it would be a bit more, a bit, a little bit more. So you're talking oh, yeah.
0: like three months uh, of writing every day to get to that uh, the length oh, yeah. of a no- novel. But yeah, then of I, course I, you clean it up and change it and modify. Yeah, and, suddenly, it.
1: and you and, you, and you, move, you move characters around, and suddenly you, you kill somebody off or you didn't plan to or, or something like that, you know.
0: So. Would you would you be able to describe what sort of style of writing that uh, would would describe what what you do? How you use words? Uh, I mean, you're a journalist, so we try and write in a way that everybody can understand. So yeah. we don't want well, to use two things, big two things words. Here.
1: Yeah, uh, so I, I I do write stream of consciousness a lot, which can be very sloppy. I mean, you've got to clean it up and tighten it up, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I if you're writing a novel, and it sounds a bit crude, but if you're writing a sex scene, which I have in a couple of my books, uh, make sure you're typing with both hands. <laughs> <laughs> if, <laughs> that's, that's nicely put, isn't it? <laughs> right. If, okay. Because if if your reader, if your reader thinks you're getting off on it. <laughs> Then it's bad. That's wrong. You know, you're meant to be writing for the reader, not for you. So that part of it is good advice. The other thing is, is throw away your rosé's thesaurus. You know? Don't use big words, but a little word will fit. You know. Uh, also, I guess having been a talkback radio person, I'm pretty good at, when I'm reading other people's books, uh, I'll, I'll say, he wouldn't have said that like that. You know? That's not the way he would have put that when you're doing something in quotes. So having talked to people on radio and off radio for so many years, you can smell when a quote sounds phony. So that's, well, that's yeah, also good advice. You,
0: you, when you're writing a novel, I would think you've got to get into the head of the person that you're writing about or oh. putting quotes on. Oh, yeah uh you know so that they actually are authentic i, I think yeah, yeah. that would be the difficult thing it, it, it is a big i'll tell you what
1: we, 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 you stumbled on there something very important when, when i was writing a novel i would start a folder give a folder to every character right? a physical um, cardboard folder and at any time i was thinking walking or thinking or reading something that may fit that character a picture, a quote, a comment, I'd throw that clipping in that folder. And so the the, 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 the main character in both my novels, his name was Hunter, and he was a journo, uh, he had a folder. And whenever I thought something he should be doing or should be saying, or would be saying, I should say, uh, I would, I'd throw that, I'd, I'd scribble a note to myself and throw it in the folder. So you built your character's character in physical folders, and it became very, very important. I mean,
0: and how much, Darren, of those characters are based on people that you met, you know, you worked with, or even on on yourself? Most, most. I mean, most writers have one character in their book that's based
1: on themselves or partly on what they think they should be or should have been. Uh, in my in my first novel, Death at Newport, the main character, um... um uh, Penelope Pike, she was based on a, the richest girl in the world, called um, uh, called Doris Duke, who was an heiress to a tobacco fortune, uh, who owned a mansion in Newport, Rhode Island, and who, in controversial circumstances, had a car accident. And she killed a man. Uh, whether it was an accident or on purpose, becomes a part, became a part of my novel. Now, I wrote that whole novel. I was, I was about to go to Newport to cover America's Cup. And I was doing some research for a feature for a Sydney paper on Newport, Rhode Island. And in my research, reading the New York Times newspaper files, as we did in those old days, I pulled out a story and there was a one paragraph story about Doris Duke had been cleared of any criminal involvement in the death of her driver. She she hit. She was hit. He was driving her. He got out through the gates of her mansion. She hit the accelerator. This is true. Hit the accelerator, and pinned him to the gates and killed him. Uh, that happened, and I turned that into a whole novel. I I built on that. I decided that her driver, who I, who did actually come from Brazil, would come from a, the favelas, from the, from a, a poor village in, in, in Brazil and I built that and, and I, had his, I had his son, I changed the names of course, had his son, a Vietnam vet, go looking for her to exact revenge because he thought his father had been murdered. That's so I uh, it all from
0: there. that's the thing, uh, Darren. You, you, when you're the writer of a novel, you have total control of everything, so you can make them do char- characters, make them do anything you want them to that's do. Right. It's your world. That's you right. you well, would get immersed if, in that as you're writing that. Yeah, oh, too, you do, you?
1: you do totally, and you go off in t- tangents. I mean, my second novel I why uh, I've hated it, Jackie hated the expression, but I used to call it faction, where you you've taken a factual event and turn it into fiction. And when I wrote Death and Paradise, which was based around fact, was based on The Sinking of the Rainbow Warrior, okay, which happened in Whiteamatta Harbour in New Zealand. But I turned that fact into fiction where I had a, a peace lover, an activist, um, named Monique Monet, MM, based on BB, Bridget Bardo, who was an activist. And I had her going, being on the Rainbow Warrior when it was blown up that she was, that the French government wanted to kill her because she was an activist opposed to the nuclear tests in Mooroa Island in uh, in the Pacific. And I built on that and, uh, and one of the great, two things that I was really flattered by about that book was one journalist said to me, might have been Ray Martin on midday, I was being interviewed and said, I stayed up all night reading I'd that bloody book and, and it annoyed me because I covered that story and I can't remember how much of yours was true and how much wasn't. And I said, well, that's a compliment. And, and the day before it was, oh, about a week before it was published, I was, I was uh, in Sydney and I got a call from the publisher saying, oh, I've had a call from our lawyers and chapter seven has to come out. And I said, why? And they said, well, because you've accused a man in the French Secret Service of murder. Of blowing up the Rainbow Warrior, I said, "Hang on," and I said, "And Mr. Chanticleer, whatever Chacutere, will sue you." And I said, "It's, a, it's it didn't happen." I said, "I've never been inside the French Secret Service. I mean, I didn't, I'm just guessing what it looks like." Um, the the guy who actually ordered the killing was, and his name was based on a French Canadian journal I knew when I worked in Montreal. <laughs> you know, so so you take that as a compliment if somebody thinks it's so real. Then they believe
0: you. Well, that's uh, that's like uh, Power Without Glory. And uh, Frank Hardy, we spoke yeah. uh, at a previous podcast about uh, the, the funeral, his funeral. Uh, that's what happened to him. He, he wrote a, a book really based on a true person. John Wren. John Wren. Changed all the names, but uh, some of the detail. I think they, they complained about the fact that John Wren's... Wife, or he, in the book, she has an affair and has a baby out of wedlock, and uh, Wren didn't like that, obviously. Yeah,
1: but the, I, I think Hardy won the case, didn't he? Yes, sure. he, he was. He, yeah. he
0: went to jail, but then uh, was cleared of it, and the book was published, uh, and uh, and he won the case. Darren, describe for me the sense of achievement that you feel when you finish the book, and then when it when you see it in print and it's published.
1: It's almost hard to describe, even as a writer, when you get your first copy of your book and you slot it into your bookcase, you know, alongside all the other books by other people and by famous people, uh, and it's just a feeling of achievement. You know, I just it 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 really is a, it's a great even. So even if you don't sell that many, and I'm telling other would-be aspiring writers, you've done it. You know, uh, and and. I I, I mentioned earlier about um, pulp fiction, about all the books that are are meshed and mashed. That's going to change and is changing now because e-books are now around, which weren't around thirty years ago. And so people can publish a book uh, very cheaply by just doing it, putting it out on eBay and hoping somebody might buy it. Uh, So you're going to find forests of trees. Books will still be sold, but forester trees will be saved because people will be publishing on eBay, and also they'll only like only if you want a printed copy, they'll only print it once you've ordered it. So that's a whole new move. I mean, I was reading about Amazon the other day and how uh, Bezos is. Uh, well, he's not. He's not actually. They're saying he's stepping down. He's. He's not. I mean, he's he's stepping down as CEO, but he's staying on as executive chairman and looking for new ideas uh, as a sort of the Steve Jobs of Amazon. Um, but the, the idea that e-books are gonna be much, much bigger and people reading on Kindle, people reading on their, you know, not reading physical books, uh, that is gonna change things, things greatly. But look, um, if, you, if you are self-publishing, and I've self-published, um, I think Human Headlines, we, I have a publishing, a small publishing company uh, called Cocoon Lodge. And we published uh, Human Headlines and we uh, had it printed in, in the book, printed in Hong Kong because it was classy and looked very, very stylish. Uh, but most people who self-publish make several mistakes. One, they don't get somebody else to read it and edit it and tell you that bit's boring. You, know, you really do need to have somebody proof it and read it. Number two, most people who self-publish, I can pick up a book off a table and say, that's self-published. They use... A font size too small. It's because it saves money if you're printing it. How many copies you make because you get more words to a page. Uh, not really. Most people who read still are older and they like a larger font. Um, and and people are, are too indulgent. You know? and you you've got you've got to try and get your audience in. Get them to want to read what you have written.
0: Darren, are there other authors that you? uh admire that you look up to and uh, if so who
1: well that's a hard one i mean i i, I honestly don't read much anymore as a youngster i, I read hemingway a lot uh, i love the fact that he wrote in short sentences i mean i sometimes write one word sentences i like him in the current bunch of, of of australian writers uh i haven't read many of his books but Peter simons i think writes very well uh, he writes a column in the Sydney morning Herald, but he also is a prolific writer. I mean, he, that, he, as I said before, he has a team of researchers because nobody could push out as many books a, as he has. I'd like to read his book on breaking a rent. Uh, uh, he's one on my list of look. I've got a pile of ten. You've seen them when you've been at my house. There's ten books sitting on my on my desk. I haven't even yet finished Malcolm Turnbull's uh, autobiography, but I, I've got a couple of Trump books here as well, which I which I, I want to read. Um, so I, I, re- I, I should read more than I do. I wish I'd read more of the classics when I was younger. Uh, but I, words still fascinate me. I mean, I am a pedant, and I, I get carried away sometimes on Twitter uh, correcting people, which <laughs> I shouldn't, shouldn't do as often as I do. Uh, uh,
0: Dalton Trumbo. Uh, I... I always say Mm. when people say what's the best book you've ever read and uh, his book uh, Johnny Got His Gun which is an anti-war book written I think after the Second World War. Mm. Magnificent. Are you familiar with that book at all?
1: No I'm familiar with him but I haven't read him. him.
0: It's Uh, about a guy who's been badly injured he's got no arms no legs he can't speak uh, and he and he tries to communicate with his nurse by tapping his head against the the bed head in Morse code. A magnificent book, beautiful. Well, when,
1: when, when I was growing up, I, I, I thought James Mishner was a, was a great writer. I used to read him quite a lot. He, he wrote a book about the earth and, and, and Norman Mailer. You know, I, I read a lot of guys who were journalists who became authors like Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill and uh, people like that. Um, I read a thing the other day about, sad thing about Truman Capote who in his later years got heavily involved in booze and uh, and drugs and he never finished his final his final book because he you know he'd be sort of shut out by the society that he'd written about over the years and it just didn't work and i was watching on, i was watching a television interview with him the other day with david frost and it was actually quite sad quite mm. sad
0: uh darren i wanted to raise another issue uh with you uh and that is uh Uh, It's been big news, the racism and uh, the Collingwood Football Club and uh, Retier Lumumba, the player. Uh, What are your thoughts about uh, how all that has been handled?
1: Well, badly, obviously. Uh, Eddie Maguire um, has retracted uh, what was a train wreck of an interview, I thought, a media conference rather. His his comment saying it was a proud moment for the Collingwood Football Club was madness. I don't know where that came from, especially with Eddie's own comments in the past. Um, well, it, to me, it,
0: it shows how spin has got out of control. I mean, obviously, yep. he's trying to, uh, you know, capture the agenda and push people into a yep. into a certain well, way of thinking that, about it.
1: Yep. Let me put two things to you, I, I, the only, I, which I tweeted around the time. Uh, I said that Hinch's law and Eddie McGuire used it at that media conference, and that is if you're being run out of town, pretend it's a parade and you are leading it. (laughs) And that's what he tried to do and it didn't work. And I'll tell you another thing, if if Collingwood and Eddie were so proud of that day, why was there not one sponsor's logo behind his head during that televised press conference? Not one sponsor. Every time they get up there, they have all the sponsors up there because that's what they pay for. And on this occasion, when he was so proud of the Collingwood Football Club, there was not one sponsor's logo present.
0: Um, I don't think Eddie Maguire is a racist, do you? No. No, I do not. I,
1: look, the day that he did that stupid comment about King Kong, right? I, I know I, I was doing Triple M, I, I should do P once a week, then. I think I was on a, the next day or a day after that, and Luke Darcy saved him that day. But the day, the morning he made that comment, he was obviously very short of sleep, not thinking well, blurted it out. Came out terribly. The night before, the reason he had no sleep. The night before, he was at an awards, an Aboriginal Indigenous Affairs person's awards night. I mean, I can tell you, Eddie McGuire's is not a racist. No, he's not at all. But he was. It was. It was a stupid thing to say and reckless thing to say.
0: Um, how much racism do you think there is? Well, in in football clubs and then in Australian. Uh, there, is there,
1: is, there is an australia I mean racism is here but I will qualify that by saying I do believe honestly believe we are the most one of the best multicultural countries in the world you know what I mean I, I really believe that um I, I we embrace other other forms of everything we embrace other languages we embrace other foods we embrace other cultures uh, I, I I'll get into trouble for this I'm i, I I agree that there should be more recognition. The Sorry Day wasn't quite enough; but it was a start. But I've, even when I was in the Senate, if I was still there, I would oppose the idea of um, the Uluru Statement Indigenous Appointments to to Parliament. I mean, you 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 do you do what, what Mr. Dodson did. You know, get yourself elected. I I don't believe in any any group being appointed. To our parliament, to the Senate, or the House of Reps, uh, I don't believe, agree with the New Zealand version of um, certain Maori seats. I don't agree with kuri, kuri courts. I think we have one legal system in this country, and the, what's the way it should be? We shouldn't have Kuri courts. We shouldn't have Lebanese courts. We shouldn't have any any other courts except the system that we have, which is not the best. I'll grant you that, but that's the way it should be. And I think um, that I think that if if, if, if if you are Indigenous and you want to elected to Parliament, join a political party, get yourself in there, as people like, like Dodson have done.
0: Mr Hinch, before we leave, uh, I might do a bit of <laughs> housekeeping, if I can. Mm. Uh, I received a, a message from the granddaughter of a lady called Shirley MacArthur, who is going to be 95 this year. She lives in New Zealand. And uh, New Plymouth, I think, which is where you come from. My hometown, yeah. Yeah, And uh, she's been following you for (laughs) years. And uh, the message is uh, this, uh, Nana recalls listening to Darren every week at 5pm 15 years ago as he broadcasts from Melbourne. This is obviously when you were doing your drive program, she was listening in New Zealand.
1: No, 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 no. I was doing I was doing News Talk ZB. I was doing reports to New Zealand about Australia.
0: Oh, right. Well, she said she connected with you, found you an interesting man and knew you were from New Plymouth in New Zealand, where some of her family come from. She's followed your career, ups and downs. There have <laughs> been a few of those. But uh, she always keeps up with what's what you're doing. Uh, her eyes and ears are failing her now, but her mind is uh, pretty sharp, and she's always kept up with current affairs, crosswords, etc. Uh, and uh, she's quite chuff, chuffed to hear that um, that I actually know you because uh, I, I know the granddaughter. The, uh,
1: well, there you go. All right. Well, Shirley Kiora uh, Kiora Katur. Uh, yep, New Plymouth, my hometown, and I get back there when I can. We're and when they lift the bubble, I'll get back there again because my sister Barbara turned 80 on February 1, and I couldn't get back there for her for her 80th birthday. And sadly, she spent she spent uh, Christmas Eve unconscious. She had a collapse at home and was in hospital. But she's now out of hospital. She's now in the Tai Nui Nursing Home in my hometown of New Plymouth. And so, Shirley, good luck and uh, go well.
0: And uh, we might get a photograph of you signed uh, by you and send it over to her, uh, Derek. Happy to do that. <laughs> Mr. Hinch, thank you very much.
1: Okay, mate.